Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Coco. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego. And I'm joined, as always, by Managing Editor Andrew Keats. Scott, what's up, pal? Not much. And fellow Managing Editor Andrea Lopez Villafana. Hello. How's it going? Very well. Thank you. Coming up on the show this week, we have a special conversation with Connor Doherty. He's an economics reporter for the New York Times and author of the book Golden Gates, Fighting for Housing in America. Andy and Connor are going to geek out about all things housing and I'm excited for that conversation. I bet you will be too. I think we're going to have a good talk about housing. Yes. Is it going to be like super nerdy? Maybe like half nerdy. Like, <laughs> you know, like like nerdy in the way that's like kind of cool nerdy, mm-hmm. but like not not nerdy nerdy. Does that's that make just, sense? Does that, what, did what I just say sound cool or <laughs> the opposite of that? That's basically our brand, right? <laughs> nerdy, but the cool version. Yeah. We do have an update that so we want to get to, so let's not waste any time. Okay, before we get into a higher level conversation about housing, there is some specific housing news in San Diego this week. You, Andy Keats, broke the news that the San Diego Housing Commission CEO, Rick Gentry, is resigning. He has resigned. He will be in his job through the end of March, and then he will not be in that job anymore. 14 years he's been in that position. Finito. Yeah, so we've done a lot of reporting about mm-hmm. the Housing Commission over the last, what, year and a half, two? Year. And a lot of revelations. You've broken some big stories, big investigations, and he's leaving amid this moment of reform, of a push for reform. I think it'd be good for us to just catch up on everything about why this matters and what could happen now. So what do you feel? Do you, Lopez, do you feel like you're, you're all on top of it, uh, this whole scandal stuff? 
Yeah, a little. I guess maybe for my peeps out there who <laughs> have no idea what the Housing Commission is or who oversees it, mm-hmm. maybe break that down. So the Housing Commission is an independent agency created by the city in under Pete Wilson, late 70s, to handle the city of San Diego's low-income housing efforts. For a very long time, what that meant was just being the local administrator of federal housing programs. So vouchers that are passed from the federal government to cities would be handed out and managed by this agency as opposed to city staff. That that was its job for a very long time. And for a long time, I've been reading San Diego history, I keep talking about it, but they did not want these federal dollars for a long time. They did not want to create a housing commission type thing. And finally they did, but in their own San Diego way as like a quasi nonprofit separate thing, right? And that was a very like San Diego thing at the time was creating these quasi, these independent nonprofits uh, that handled all kinds of different stuff like CCDC, the Center City Development Corp was a like a redevelopment agency that would handle that for the city. So th- that was like uh, an in vogue 80s era San Diego uh, government policy was government by independent nonprofit, basically. But it's gotten more broad than that. It's do- it's doing more diverse things than just handling federal dollars at this point. Yeah. And so over years, it, it picked up sort of uh, doling out the money that the city of San Diego collects for affordable housing, housing locally. So when developers build new housing, they have to pay into a pot for affordable housing. That money sits there until some nonprofit developer comes along with a plan to build it into rent-restricted units. And the San Diego Housing Commission regulates that money. It gives that money out to those developers. So that was the job it picked up over time. And Gentry really thought of himself as a developer in a way, right? He thought of himself as part of that world. That would be another move that they they added over time. They added on top of it that they created their own nonprofit. So they are a city-created nonprofit to do this stuff. They then created another nonprofit that they own that is a affordable housing developer. And so when these bids would go out for money to develop affordable housing that might be that might be sources of competition for other affordable housing developers, they would have their own nonprofit that would compete against them for money and say, I, you know, we have secured a little bit of land. Here's our idea to build. Wait, the housing of- commission's nonprofit would compete against other nonprofits for the housing commission dollars. Correct. Okay. That sounds wild. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just getting this down. Okay. Good. Yes. Yes. So, so for instance, a project like that was the Hotel Churchill, uh, affordable housing units that would that were nice and new and would be uh, maintained for like 50 years. That was built by an independent independent affordable housing developer that is a nonprofit organization controlled by the Housing Commission. Got it. Uh, so that was something that they added over years. And then the the next thing that they added, and this is like really within the last decade, they started taking on a lot of the city's homelessness services role. They would manage contracts with groups like Father Joe's. They would RFP, they, they would put out the bids for contracts and shelters and and sort of things like that. So they were sort of forever increasing the scale of their role in the city's uh, pantheon of housing issues. Well, not necessarily forever. Under Rick Gentry's direction, they well, were doing a lot of this, right? It accelerated under Gentry, but like be- okay. from where it began in the seventies, it's sort of like is like every decade or so they added a new thing onto it. Basically, it. it it very much was a has been a growing agency for a while. But it really the the 
budget, just the, in the roughest terms possible, its budget grew like almost like more than double in the last 10 years when it and that was fueled largely by taking on these this homeless services role. All right. And Lopez, I think you hit on another question a lot of people might have that there is a housing commission mm-hmm. and a housing authority. Mm-hmm. Let's get into that. So the housing authority is every city in California has a housing authority, which is just what the city council of that city calls itself when it starts handling housing related matters. So you'll see in a meeting sometimes they'll say, this city council meeting is adjourned. We are reconvening as the housing authority. Bang the gavel. Same nine people have just become the Do housing authority. Do they change authority. like name tags or anything? <laughs> <laughs> they all get up and move around. And doctor, 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 doctor. Change, doctor. change outfits. <laughs> yeah. Outfit change. Oh, 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 I get to put on a little hat now. <laughs> like, uh, and so the housing commission by a, a odd uh, circumstance of the way which it was created sort of is governed, the agency itself is governed by two boards. One board is the housing authority, which is the city council. They have a list of things that they are responsible for overseeing relative to the housing commission. And then the housing commission also has its own independent board of commissioners that is uh, appointed by the mayor, confirmed by the housing authority, the city council. And they have a different set of responsibilities that they oversee for the housing commission. Makes total sense. So this whole agency with a CEO, Rick Gentry, is serving two masters. They're answering to the city council and the commission. And then over all of this, without, like, without actually much of an official role, is the mayor. But, but it's sort of like spoken or unspoken that, of course, you need to make the mayor happy too. So there's this third person, you know, this third office that you also have to deal with. And so you might gather just from hearing this that whoever is in that position is by necessity a political animal Mm -hmm. you know somebody who needs to manage up to all of these different overseeing bodies fascinating all right all of that sort of broke down though over the last year or not necessarily broke down but those contradictions those overlapping oversight responsibilities all of that seemed to come under a kind of a stress test based in large part on what you revealed in some of your investigative work. So am I right? There's kind of two main areas of what you might say controversy. I would say so. Yeah. Okay. Well, and then a third being, so the, well, let's see, the first is this issue of the, they purchased hotels mm-hmm. and there was a conflict of interest that came out of that. We'll get into that. The second was they at the hotels, there was some uh, deaths and, and the reporting and discovery about those was a little bit um, concerning, right? Yeah. And then I guess the third and a general one is just, is it performing well? Is it doing the job with all the homelessness that we face, all that? Is it going well? Is that fair? I think that's fair. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, let's break it down. So the conflict of interest one. So in the summer of 2020, the city, the city council, uh, following the lead of state gov- the state government as a whole, the state government as a whole created this pot of money. They said, we are in the middle of a pandemic. There are lots and lots of people on the streets. We have housed them in these temporary shelters in the city of San Diego. That was the convention center. And what are we going to do here? Just put them back out on the streets? That doesn't seem tenable. At the same time, the tourism industry has collapsed. Hotels haven't had any money coming in for quite a while. They seem to be in financial distress. Maybe we can combine these two realities and take advantage of the situation, buy some hotels on the cheap, turn them into housing, 
people who are living in the convention center can be moved into these converted hotel rooms. State of California makes a bunch of money available to that end. The city of San Diego uh, tasks the housing commission with being the agency that's going to go out, find hotels to compete for that state money to buy those hotels and then run them. The housing commission will be in charge of operating them as well. When the housing commission does that, it brings in a broker to help it. That broker after signing an agreement with the housing commission goes and places a very large investment in a REIT, a real estate investment trust, a company that just owns hotels basically. And then one of the hotels that is owned by that REIT is the one that he suggests to the city they should buy. He negotiates that transaction and the, the price and the city buys it. But and he has a financial interest in the company that is selling the city a hotel that he suggested they buy and at, at a price that he, you know, uh, advised them was good and reasonable and and you know ushered them through this process. But he stands to benefit. Yes. Yeah. So and and there was a couple of different angles, right? One was he didn't disclose this, or there's dispute about who he disclosed whom he disclosed it to. So about six months later, I got wind of this situation and I eventually obtained an internal investigation from the Housing Commission's legal counsel, which was thorough in the sense that it laid out this whole narrative that I'm about to describe. So when I say things, it's all coming from this legal counsel internal yep. investigation that said, um, basically, they became aware that he had never filed a Form 700, this economic disclosure document and they asked him to do that at which time he said he'd really rather not <laughs> <laughs> never a good sign but okay and it was in the course of those discussions that they learned that the reason he would really rather not is because of this large investment he had made in between contracting with them and negotiating the purchase so there's one version of the story where he's going on doing his investments and everything. And then they, they say, you need to fill this out. And he's like, oh, this is maybe a problem. And there's another version where he knows it's all a problem and it's bad. Well, so his what he says, uh, what he has said in the press afterwards is he told high-ranking San Diego Housing Commission officials about this investment at the time. And no one ever told him it was a problem in any way. And that, we don't know exactly, He said uh, his lawyers say that they have evidence to substantiate that claim. We haven't seen that, so we don't know what it is, but there's indications in the legal counsel's own internal review that that's exactly what happened. Uh, it is revealed in there, there was a, a subsequent document that was like a written Q&A between city council members and the housing commission about this situation. And they said, did anyone else know about it? And basically, yeah, two high ranking vice presidents, both vice presidents in the housing commission said they were in fact told about this investment and did nothing about it. Mm. Uh, each for different reasons, but basically boiling down to, uh, I don't know, what do you do about a situation like that? It seemed awfully complicated. And right. so they didn't run it up the flagpole. So there's two other angles on this. One is his investment did well, right? Yes, yes. Was, so it's, now, that it becomes complicated because like, there's other factors. Did it do well because of this sale or did it do well because real estate investment trusts that are primarily concerned with hotels all did well during that period of time. The mm -hmm. reason being, it was at a very low point at the bottom of the recession, and when things started getting better, and when there was a bunch of relief funds coming through to them, and they got better. And so that 
overlapped. So it's hard to draw a cause and effect that he that his that the stock climb was due to the sale that he had helped negotiate. But it is also true that the stock climbed the stock climbed during this time. Uh, and then there's a third issue, yeah, which is that the housing commission mm-hmm. paid a price for this hotel that was quite high com- compared to other similar properties. So the housing commission bought two hotels at this exact same time. One was in Kearney Mesa, one was in Mission Valley. As is typical in both of those instances, they conducted an appraisal, a independent appraisal as it were. Uh, but those two appraisals, despite taking being part of the same government program, the same pot of money at the same time, purchased by the same agency for the same purpose, did not conduct their appraisals in exactly the same way. The Kearney Mesa pr- appraisal uh, was dated to, it, it attempted to describe the value of the property it was buying basically right at the time that it was buying the property, summer of 2020. said, here's how much this property is worth right now. The Mission Valley property, which is the one that he had this investment in, did not do that. It said, how much was this property worth back before the pandemic occurred? Before this historic disruption of our economy and way of life. Which was specifically the reason that the state decided that hotels would probably be available and they should go try to buy them in the first place. So doing that made it more valuable. And the appraiser, I don't know if they're trying to send up a red flag or if they're just being plain spoken, but says repeatedly throughout the appraisal that the property has an elevated value because they have been instructed to conduct it based on what the price was prior to the pandemic. Who instructed them? That's a wonderful question that I would love to know (laughs) the answer to, and I don't. And to all of our readers and listeners, I'm sorry, I'm trying. But to be clear, we have never understood and they have never satisfactorily explained why those two appraisals done at the same time for the same purpose were done differently. Well, so this this controversy turns into a problem between the city attorney and the housing commission. I don't think we need to break that down especially, except that it highlighted the fact that the city attorney is supposed to represent the stuff that these guys do. And the housing commission has its own lawyers who are supposed to oversee that stuff. And they fought, right? Yes. And one other thing that was revealed in this whole thing is that like the housing commission and the city council were being briefed on this in separate closed session meetings. And because they're closed session, Everyone in each of those meetings is barred from talking to each other about what is said in those meetings. Mm. And so there started to be some concern raised that they'd like to all be in the same room at the same time, hearing the same thing, hearing the having the benefit of whatever question somebody else asked and uh, not sort of being divided and, and, and spoken to separately. Um, and they kept being told, well, that's not possible. There's just no legal mechanism by which we could have a closed session meeting with both of these boards. You are, you are separate legal entities and thus it must be. And that made people on the commission and the city council very uneasy. And they what they thought was a flaw in the governmental structure of the agency. And this was exacerbated when you revealed, and Lisa Halberstadt, mm-hmm. that at those hotels, there were a lot of deaths of people who were previously homeless. Now, it's not uncommon for deaths like that to occur, that often when they get into a stable situation, something happens. We, we don't 
not necessarily at all implying that they did something wrong to cause those deaths, but those deaths were significant and they were a problem and there was concern because they didn't tell anybody. Yeah, so we started asking questions of the agency and of officials that have any sort of oversight role in it. And it became clear during the course of that that city council and the mayor's office and were only started being briefed on it when we started asking about it. Uh, and so that created a, a new round of consternation from these officials who uh, didn't like being surprised by the press about people dying in city-owned properties that had been quite high profile and already part of this scandal just a few months earlier. So this all comes together. Last week, the city council decides it wants to create a, another committee that will be responsible for actually potentially reforming how this all works, correct? That's correct. So then they And they laid out a list of like, potential things that they might decide to reform. One of them was maybe we, the city council, should be in charge of reviewing the annual performance of the CEO, who in this case is Rick Gentry. They said maybe we should take another look at whether this agency should have any role in homelessness-related services in the first place. Uh, they looked at just cleaning up some of these very structural issues about when and who's allowed to go to uh, closed session hearings. Um, whether it's appropriate for them to have separate legal counsel or whether they should fall under the city attorney's office for legal counsel. So it's, it's like a range of potentially significant policy decisions and like uh, direct personnel oversight and sort of wonkier bureaucratic uh, tying up loose ends type stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so one week after that discussion, Rick Gentry resigned. That's where we are. That is where we are. And uh, his his take is, was kind of interesting. He just basically said, well, they're doing all this reform stuff. I should either leave at the beginning of it or at the end, but it doesn't make sense for me to live in, leave in the middle. And I would hope that they finish their reform decisions before they hire a replacement. Uh, he also said uh, he seems like the city council needs to decide what it wants out of the housing commission. And he added helpfully that he doesn't think they entirely know right now. I'll never forget when we were trying to decide whether to move the airport or not. And the former mayor of Denver comes to San Diego and he gives a big speech and he's like there, they'd asked him a lot about the airport and they, how they could move the airport. Denver just did this giant. Like, yeah. Thing. And, and I'll never forget. It's the classic question to ask San Diego. They said, he said, I don't in, in Denver, we wanted to build an airport. It was obvious the airport was bad. It was congested. It was needed to be moved. I don't know that you've made a similar decision here in San Diego. I think you could add that to every civic issue we face. What do we really want out of all of these different governments, out of all these different facilities, out of everything? And answering that question first seems actually to be an astute way to approach it. Mm -hmm. Connor Doherty is an economics reporter at the New York Times. He does a lot of work on the West Coast, focusing on housing and wages. His book, released in 2020, is Golden Gates, Fighting for Housing in America. He also had a wonderful story in the New York Times about a home in Claremont. It's called Where the Suburbs End. A single-family home from the 1950s is now a rental complex and a vision of California's future. We are very excited that he's here. He is a primo housing nerd, and we sat him down with our brightest own housing nerd, Andy Keats. Andy. What I wanted to do is go through three pieces that you've put together over the last few years. 
Uh, one, your book, Golden Gates, Fighting for Housing in America. Uh, next was a New York Times story you did this summer on the proliferation of accessory dwelling units. And you centered that on one house in Claremont here in San Diego, mm-hmm. uh, which made everybody in San Diego feel, feel very good to be like the, the use case example for a New York Times story about the entire state. We have a, a little city complex here, so uh, we appreciate that. Uh, and then your most recent story, which is sort of on the the California exodus of housing and how it's affecting other places, uh, specifically you wrote about Spokane, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So to set the table, maybe you could give us a capsule summary of Golden Gates fighting for housing in America and in the context of how we got here. I wrote Golden Gates thinking about how could I just explore the housing problem through a local place, through, through, through a local government or through local government as a phenomenon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the reason I did that is that I, the more I had read about housing and learned about housing and covered housing, I really sort of came to believe that we all have the same problem, but it all kind of manifests locally. And so if you wanted to kind of unspool that problem, you kind of had to center on one place. Mm-hmm. I did have, it's funny, I had a lot of conversations with my publisher about like, is that the right thing to do? Is it better to like make it seem more national or will it seem too local? If you, And I, and I really wanted to, but I, I just kind of came to, I wanted to kind of be rooted in a place so you could sort of understand mm-hmm. how things happened. Yeah. That place was mostly the Bay Area, but also California as a sort of, phenomenon post-World War II growth and how California went from this place everybody wanted to go to this um, kind of housing screwed up state. And I guess the premise of the book was, you know, it's funny. One thing people ask me about the book is they say, because when it ends, it just sort of ends. And they go, why aren't there a bunch of solutions here? Why, aren't, you know, yeah. and I, I sort of say to people, the whole book is solutions. The whole bo- the characters in the book are this woman Sonia Trouse, who kind of started off with this kooky group called BARF, which stood for the Bay Area Ranchers Federation, and kind of became a housing activist pushing for trying to make housing more plentiful by making it easier to build. Which, then, for whom uh, to whom we now owe credit for the <laughs> the Yimby, Yimby movement. Yes, right. she was kind of the original Yimby, or yes. at least in my view, she was one of the original Yimbys. Um, and then there's other characters like a 15-year-old girl who is trying to prevent her family from being evicted. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of goes from being just like a regular 15-year-old girl to this kind of tenant rights activist pretty much overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And by purely by necessity, she's got no... Yeah, she, would, she, she doesn't want to be in like, politics or anything. She's yeah. fighting for survival. Uh, and there's a, training. Yeah. yeah, then there's a, a nun who's trying to start like a community land trust. And there's like a bureaucrat, a city manager of a city who's in a very suburban exclusive city who wants to try to make them make the city be more opening to ha- more welcoming to housing. Uh, and then there's a developer. Anyway, my point is, is that all of these people are trying to work on a solution, whether it's Sonia with changing the law through activism, or it's this girl, Stephanie Gutierrez trying to fight a landlord and mm-hmm. ultimately get tenant rights uh, legislation passed or if it's a developer, this guy Rick Holiday, who wants to make it just cheaper to build actual housing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, or this nun with her community land trust, or this, anyway, all of these people are, are, are working on some sort of solution that's right for them. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And by kind of watching their stories and see how they unfold and seeing them often just like smash their face into a wall, you sort of see, I hope you see, how hard the solutions are to implement. And and I just feel like a list of bullet points yeah. is just like not particularly helpful. And so I think of the book as watching kind of like how people try to make change on this problem and how hard it is. But also, you know, there are there are moments of optimism, moments of pessimism, but how how much how difficult it is and how much it requires of you and and uh yeah and, well, so and seeing it in action so the 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 observation i often have about this maybe you agree maybe you disagree I, I think it's pretty consistent with what you just said and with what's and what's in the book is that housing conversations suffer from the fact that the the costs the the consequences are like as real as something can be and the proposed solutions are about as abstract as something can feel in that like people know when they can't afford rent people know when they are uh displaced from a community because of the forces that are that that, that make housing unaffordable uh people can see the real effects of homelessness but when you start to talk about policy solutions and it's like well you know we've gotten here from 30 years of underbuilding and it will require 30 more years of commensurate built, uh housing production to hopefully reach some sort of equilibrium decades in the future, it's like it couldn't leave you more empty. Yeah, totally agree with all of that. Yeah, uh, I think at some level we have to sort of reconcile with the bigness of mm -hmm. it, and which is like we're sort of talking about civilization. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, how do we live in large, complicated, crowded, uh, diverse? places yeah how do we all figure out a way to make this whole thing work together and live here you know make our private homes and our private lives kind of consistent with this massive uh kind of thing that our cities yeah and that's not a thing we've ever had like an easy solution to and are right. kind of constantly fighting through and and how you want to structure your society has so much to do with like your culture and stuff like that like you know, people, one of the things that always is interesting is people will often point to other countries, oh, Singapore or Vienna or, you know, other countries that, yeah, that have done housing in a different way. And you're just like, I don't, I, don't, I think they're certainly helpful in terms of like food for thought, yeah. but a lot of people don't want to live in yeah. Tokyo, in San Diego. Yeah. And, and they moved to San Diego specifically because they didn't want to, you know? Yeah. And so how you sort of, deal with that and how you sort of reconcile with you know what people want what their dreams are what their structure are you know i mean and, you know, and i think that's why housing fights get so nasty and, and can can be so toxic when you know on on the whether it's on the internet or at a community planning meeting it's because it feels like a visceral attack on people sometimes and 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 that you know those yeah. are and, and and that's one group of people but there's you know and the, there's a more um I mean, feeling like something's wrong in your home yeah. is very destabilizing. Okay, just just yeah, yeah. just think about this. Your good friend or yeah. family member or someone like that can come stay with you. Yeah. That's fine. Right? And and you have like let's just say you have a big enough house that you have a guest room. Yeah. Let's say that they have their own bathroom, whatever. Like every luxury for having a house guest is sort of taken care of. After a day or two or three days or four days, 
you're getting kind of annoyed with them. Yeah. It kind of sucks that they're at your house. (laughs) You, you know, you kind of just go into the kitchen and they're not even doing anything, but they're there. Right. And you're used to kind of being, and you just get home from work and you're like, I just want to do, like, I just, I kind of want to just eat cereal for dinner tonight. I don't want to go anywhere with you. I don't want to like make a thing of it. You know, Yeah. my point is, is that it just get, you get really agitated Mm -hmm. having a guest in all of comfort, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, in your own home, or maybe I'm, maybe I'm sort of, you know, betraying a little bit of privilege here. But my point is, is that no matter who you are, no matter what your situation, you kind of, you kind of like the consistency of home. And, and even in a very low grade annoyance situation, like the one I just described, but one that is like not worthy of any real complaints, mm-hmm. people get really annoyed. Yeah. So you can just imagine how, destabilizing it feels to have like your neighborhoods you know this this thing of home is so private to people and it's so secure and and any attempt to mess with it is is like an attack on you which is why i think housing is so nonpartisan. it just does not map to ideology at all it's it doesn't map to ideology at all it's yeah exactly it's it's um yeah well we've gotten into this in the in the on the podcast in the past but it's like it's it's both nonpartisan or it's like the opposition and the support arguments are both bipartisan. If that makes sense. Oh yeah, no, you know that's I mean? why it's so it's hard like, to solve. Yeah, because there isn't a way. It's like conservatives uh, and yeah. progressives find common ground on both both sides yeah, of the housing exactly. discussion. Right. Well, you know what I always say. I find that people who are like, for lack of a better term, yimby. Yeah. Or pro housing, or whatever the like right term is, which is they they have constant struggle finding yeah, that exactly. one. Yeah, exactly. They have what I call like a kind of, for lack of a better term, chill. Yeah. And what I mean by that is, is that like let's just say there's an abandoned lot, and or you know it could be a nasty lot or a bucolic yeah. you know lot, and there is a proposal for something there. Yeah. There's a certain kind of person who is like their mind and the way that anxiety works is just like can only what if, only what if a serial wrong, killer moves yeah. in there you know or whatever like all How, these where will i park yeah what, who yeah, yeah all these things and then there's another kind of person who's just like yeah i'm, I'm sure it'll be fine I, it'll be fine yeah, sure you know like yeah, yeah, yeah. i think it'll be fine you know yeah. like like yeah. oh yeah i don't know Maybe, you know it'll probably be fine right and right, right. i i don't feel that that kind of those different feelings like map that well onto like other things you know? it'll probably be fine is not an especially great uh political position to take out into the world if you're an elected official yeah. now i no, well actually i take that back maybe it is maybe it is but but it, it hasn't been one that politicians have been especially eager to espouse in the past mm-hmm. one of the things i love about the characters in this book is that they are all for as much as they fight with each other yeah they are all so similar mm-hmm. and that they are the people who show up and do things. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just right off the bat, a very elite Makes you, group. It, it, it immediately renders you a, a tiny percentage oh, of the population. Yeah. Right? Like right. anybody who even knows about local politics, like at all is already, is, is already a small group. And yeah. then you're the people who show up to meetings, who yeah. do all this activism. Right. And, um, and I say this at every level. I mean, I met tons of tenants. Yeah. Uh, you know, low income tenants are just like, I'm not going to bother with this. I don't even want to deal with this. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I meet, you know, I met tons of like sort of young tech workers who are like, I don't, I don't have time for this, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. And so it's a pretty like 
society-wide thing it feels like that like not wanting to deal with this the bother of like having your life um you know your precious time your free time sort of occupied by trying to make change through the political system and so it's funny i just like i love all these characters yeah simply because they are the people who show up even though it's funny because and and i feel oftentimes like when they get in fights with each other it's because they're the only person around to get in a fight with. Like yeah. I, you know, you go to a, you go to a city council meeting and you know, there's one group saying, you know, do this and the other group saying, do this. And then they're like, you're the horrible gentrifier or whatever. Yeah. And it's like the person you should be mad at is the person who's just kind of walking down the street, not caring, <laughs> but it would of course be weird to just run down the street yelling at random people how, so like how, you <laughs> how dare you care only about your the popular music yeah, you like yeah, and exactly. whether you can get your kid to school on exactly. time exactly like yeah. it just and so these people find they find the way to take out their frustrations on the world on each other even though yeah the the sort of way it works out is that they're kind of much more similar than different it's funny i was just meeting with someone the other day that for something i'm kind of working on maybe possibly and um this person could not be no i just meant it's like it's just like very like i don't know maybe maybe it's a thing let me think um and the person could not be further than you could get from a a nimby yeah or sorry yimby yeah but as i was talking to them i was like wow this person has like so much in common with even if you just went through the biography like like kind of like a lot, particularly on the activism side, a lot of these people like just kind of didn't have a career they were super jazzed about. Yeah. In some in some cases, the career was going from any outside appearance well, but they just like weren't that into yeah, it yeah, or yeah, it just didn't yeah. fire them up. Like that was totally there with this person. Yeah. Very similar to some of the Yimbies. You know, it's like what causes you to go to a city council meeting right. and really be an activist? Of course, like I said, in some of the cases in this book, it's just outright survival. But in other times, this is sort of vague... Yeah. I want the world to be different. I want to change this thing and I feel that I can make a difference. But then of course it becomes a job and a social well, world. Exactly. It becomes yeah. this yeah. social world. It's funny. Yeah. I was I was just talking to someone about this the other day that I find the thing that I find so interesting about the Yimby people yeah. in San Francisco is when I first met Sonia who yeah. was kind of the main Yimby in this Sonia Trous in this book. I met her for breakfast at a diner in Oakland. She shows up in a, um, like a very bright orange crown Victoria that has glitter flicked in the paint. It looked like a bowling ball, like a, you know, when you go to those like glow yeah, 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 bowling yeah, ball yeah, places yeah. like, and, uh, cosmic bowling. And yeah. she's wearing this very interesting outfit. That's like kind of a combination, kind of like a, 80, like a like look like a white snake fan and they you know she had like acid wash jeans and the snakeskin belt and like this yeah. and um and then she starts talking about all this economic stuff and she was just this very rough around the edges kind of showing up to meetings and that was like the level of where it was when i first started reporting on this now there's this whole Yimby apparatus they've sponsored all these bills they've yeah. you know i mean the, this guy brian Hanlon, who was a, uh, was like you know, just kind of this guy who was like, just sort of showed up to meetings with Sonia. Right. He would hate that description, but that's like <laughs> how I saw him at that time. So yeah. uh, from an outsider perspective, that's what it looked like. 
Um, but he was he was working a different job yeah. at that time. You know, now he's like running this organization and right, right. passing all these bills and and it was like I did not and and w- anyway, what I find interesting is that there's all these people kind of on the periphery of that, people who aren't like activists, but just kind of young people sort of vaguely in that orbit. Mm-hmm. And they seem to have absorbed like, oh, it's the good thing is to have more housing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, you know, part of the reasons our cities are messed up is they make it too hard to build housing. That like vague notion slash value mm-hmm. seems to have been fairly widely distributed yeah. and adopted. At least in those circles, right? Nobody, well, in those circles, but beyond, I meant beyond, certainly in those circles, but beyond like the hardcore members, like just there. Yeah. And I, like I, I go to this farmer's market in Oakland and they have like a, uh, like a booth set up to like protest some like 19 story tower they want to build on this old college campus near me. And you will hear people walk up and go like, well, we need the housing. Yeah. You know, the way, the way that someone says we need need the rain. rain. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. You know, (laughs) and, and, and it's like, well, maybe it's unfortunate, but we really need the housing. And and, and I think 10 years ago that what you wouldn't have heard that. It would have been like, let's stop this thing. Yeah. Hell yeah. Developers. And I just like watching that kind of permeate has been, and I think about it not to get, you know, too historical. Yeah. So we're in a newsroom, damn it. But, um, (laughs) but you know, in the seventies, I feel like environmentalism, like all the kind of NIMBY values were kind yeah. of like coded then. I mean, yeah. I, I know we're not supposed to use that term, but, um, yeah, no, the, the, the kind of environmentalism stopping housing is good. Like that was encoded as a value. And it probably at and, that and time, probably particularly was a, value. a democratic value that it's it, kind of both, but yes. Yeah, sure. But, but like the, the, the early California, uh, environmental housing movement was, an outgrowth of the of the like the student activism, you know, but with with Tom Hagen, at, it at, was actually an early activist against housing in Santa Monica, and so like it was very like in keeping with the conception of if you were a good Democrat with good liberal values, that this was the side you would be associated with, and the Yimby, the Yimby like project in some ways to me seems to be basically just dismantling that gut level association. Yeah. And I think you're starting to see, this is something I'll probably like keep reporting on, but like, I feel like that's starting to permeate, that's starting to filter up. Mm-hmm. I have, you know, there's been this new, like at a, at a federal level, infrastructure has kind of become, for lack of a better term, sexy. Yeah. Um, you know, you've heard people say I'm a supply side liberal, which is a term you might start hearing more, but. It's, and it's, it would have been unthinkable in the Bush. Well, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a yeah. way of saying like, I'm a liberal, but I want to be very pro growth. Yes, yes. And, yes. and I feel like this sort of like general yimbyism, growthism, this, we need to create more jobs. We need to, if we, if we want super trains and bike lanes, we do have to actually build them. Yeah. You know, like I think people are sort of, there is this sort of backlash to that, like, 1970s why do we even need growth why is growth a thing like we live we we're we all have enough material um sort of surplus that we shouldn't even be thinking about this anymore why are we worrying about like like that kind of 70s mindset is sort of getting i guess it's in some ways it it, you're as i'm hearing you talk about it it's like 
that 70s mindset was such a reaction against the 50s era suburban building. And this is such a reaction against that, that it's actually, maybe it's no more different than we all hate our parents. Yeah, no, no, no. It's I, not more I complicated absolutely than that, believe that. You know? I absolutely, I mean, it's, it's, it's more, um, anyhow, we're off in some, right. like, well, very, you, know, I, you know, it's funny. I just read Chuck Klosterman's book about the 90s, the 90s yeah, yeah. and now obviously that has nothing to do with what we're talking about, except that it really got me in the mindset of like, how do things change over and the how decades? Different am I, and yeah. what are, what, what is the like root of backlashes and like, you know, and I think there yeah. it's possible that we're seeing the beginning of a, a, a Yimby backlash too, as it, especially as it grows more ascendant. I, like yes, a, but like I a, don't. Yeah, like a left nimbyism almost. If that happens, mm-hmm. it will, in my mind, if that happens, yimbyism will have never been a thing. Right. I think something yeah, yeah, has to yeah. persist for a couple decades for it to be a thing. It would be a very fleeting movement. If yeah, it, if but I, I don't think, I think that, or maybe we call it some other thing. Yeah, yeah. And when you and I look back in 50 years, if we're so fortunate, um, if I'm 94, um, that will go, oh, that thing we talked about, Yimbyism was the beginning of that thing. Like meaning it might it, become yeah. some other thing. Right. But what I mean is, is I do think there is a sort of broadly held view that growth does not always have to be bad. Yeah. Well, so that's a good segue to the, your piece uh, the, from this summer on uh, accessory dwelling units, the growth of them, the embrace of them in California. Uh, alongside that sort of, uh, policy cousin to that, the SB nine, yeah, um, which allowed single family lots to be split and allowed duplexes to be built on single family lots, essentially ending single family zoning in the state. And so, you sort of um, in the in there's a paragraph I'll, I want to read here because you you set up the the normal development discussion dealt with. Two types of development, basically. One was sprawl development, where you, you take sub- you know, virgin land, you plow it, you put uh, leafy cul-de-sac uh, with cul-de-sacs and uh, houses on them, or building towers or mid-rises in already developed urban areas, always involving large developers who need to go through a complicated political uh, process to do so. And you write. In the vast zone between those poles lies existing single-family neighborhoods like Claremont, which account for most of the urban landscape, yet remain conspicuously untouched. The emission is the product of a political bargain that says sprawl can sprawl and downtowns can rise, but single-family neighborhoods are sealed off from growth by the cudgel of zoning rules that dictate what can be built where. The deal is almost never stated so plainly, but it is the foundation of local politics in virtually every U.S. city and cuts to the core of the country's deepest class and racial conflicts. So that puts in context the what the ADU project and the SB9 project is going for in, a, in, a, in pretty significant terms, that we're driving to the heart of the American dream and asking questions about it. Uh, and so what do you like? What do you like a year later coming up on a year later? What do you what do you make of, of how this is being received and and how promising it is as a, a solution to this intractable intractable problem? I think that well, it I I don't think we know yet. Mm-hmm. So let me start by saying, I don't think just to answer the question directly, mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to be. I don't think we're going to say, oh, this was the solution. Yeah, 
But I don't think anything is going to be the solution. Mm. And I and I think sometimes, you know, even independent of housing, this sort of idea that something has to be the solution is often the problem. You know, like like we're seeing this now with, you know, energy, like is is coal always bad? Like I mean, the maybe, thing about you, you panaceas know, is that there aren't. Yes, any. exactly. Like <laughs> yeah. there, it's always about like if you just if everything has to be the one thing, it like you know it it's everything of, suffers under. Yeah, the weight exactly. Of it, right? Like you know, be flexible, whatever you know. Um, anyway, so so just to give you a little bit of a backstory on how I came to that story, because mm-hmm. I do think it's kind of important. Um, I've been covering housing for about ten or fifteen years, but I've only been covering it like in this uh, really California housing crisis, you know, intensely thing for about five or six years. Mm-hmm. And uh, at each stage of the story, as, as you know, you're kind of like your mind, your mind, where the story is living mm-hmm. kind of changes. Yeah. So, I mean, when I met Sonia at that diner in the sort of little description I gave you a second ago, previous to meeting Sonia, I had been writing a lot about economic reports about, Oh, we have a housing problem in this country. And yeah. you know, the, putting the, numbers to it. Yeah, like that but it would, was like, it that, was, if people get the right numbers, yes. then they'll understand. But, but I yeah. mean, meaning the story really lived there. It was a reporting on a report. Yeah. Grade yeah. reporting. Right. Then I met Sonia and I was like, Oh, this is really interesting. This is like a normal person. Yeah. Uh, who's really become animated to activism about like these very dry economic and zoning reports, right? Yeah. Okay. Then it became like a legislative story. Yeah. You know, I wrote a lot about Scott Weiner, who's a California state senator, trying to pass, uh, you know, SB fifty and the predecessor d- to that. bills. Yeah. Okay. And then writing about that around the country, so it's kind of a state house story at that point. I mean, yeah. you could see the story moving. It's like, you know, intellectual leaders, yeah. activists, state house. Okay. When I went. To Claremont, and when I really came to San Diego for that story, it was the first time I had felt like, oh wow, you can actually see this. Yeah. You can drive down a block yeah. and say, uh, okay, there's that, there's that, there's that. You know, like, wow, I have never seen building quite like this. Mm-hmm. And the story is now taking on like a physical, wow, they're really actually yeah. building new stuff. And it looks the water very came all different. the way down to the pipe, and now yeah, it's dripping. Yeah, out the and end. you're like, whoa. Oh, okay. okay. And the reason I think that that description of where the story is living mm-hmm. is so important is for a lot of neighbors, yeah. and for a lot of people, kind of like I was telling you before, you know, the number of people who go to Sacramento or go to their local city council to complain about something is still a small number. Yeah. Okay. Once it's next door to you that number multiplies like a lot. You know what I mean? People who are not aware of a single thing happening at the San Diego City Council or Sacramento are very aware of it (laughs) when it's being built next door to them. So how that plays out and how people accept that will be like incredibly interesting to watch because the optimistic version of it is people go like, huh, you know, like they built the thing next door. Like, wasn't that big of a deal? Um, the pessimistic version is, you know, all the parking problems and all these things that people worried about, you know, the party next door, whatever, all those things really do come to fruition. Um, and I think you're seeing this here in San Diego. It'll be really interesting to watch this, um, you know, in 
over by San Diego State because it's nuts over there. Like I went, I thought Claremont was really a great place for that story because Claremont, though it's, it just looks it's like a neighbor. So the, it's so the classic post-war. Sub, post-war yeah, I mean, it's, it was in, like, according in, to this thing I read, it was like the largest master plan community outside of Levittown. Yeah. That yeah. must have only been true for a second because I bet you that Lakewood quickly eclipsed it. But I mean, right. for that, you know. For that moment that it was yeah. true, it was true. Right. And it's yeah. like, it is just the classic post-World War II yeah. kind of subdivision that is we now think of as a neighborhood, but it was a many subdivisions yeah. at Claremont that time. Claremont is like the, you know, the 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 joke about like, well, we need to, the vote's going to come down to turn out in, in, in pivotal Weekishaw County. Yeah. Claremont is that for San Diego. Yeah, it's, exactly. And yeah. so, but, but, but when you drive over by San Diego state, it's pretty nuts. I mean, I remember I was driving around over there while I was doing that story and it was like, wow, like you can just drive down a block and it's like, there's like a big old side house ADU they're building, mm-hmm. which is across the street from the, um, ADU that's obvious it's like bounce you know peeking up over the back of the ranch house and then and then every garage seems to be under conversion that was funny i was having a conversation with um your the city councilman over there sean elo rivera now council president oh so there you go he's moved up in the world since i last talked to him so uh and he he was saying oh people over there are very unhappy about it and i was like i remember saying to him i was like Who's unhappy about it? Looks like they're all doing it. Yeah, like, yeah, I was yeah like, exactly. Yeah. And he was like, "No, it's literally everybody who is not doing it." And is it's the like, one who's it's, And I was like, "I mean, because it is truly stunning the number of ADUs and the amount of construction going on just in that neighborhood around San Diego State." Yeah. And kind of when I was saying before about like this is the first time I could see it. Like you drive through those neighborhoods and it's it's like whoa. Yeah. You know, like you you can perceive, you know, and and. Like as a reporter, that's always like an exciting moment because like up to that time, all the like, like, I don't know, Scott Wiener passed this law, Scott Wiener, Senator Scott Wiener. Yeah, and this is a debate entirely about hypotheticals. Yeah. Well, and it would be like he passed this law called SB 35. And in his version of like this being successful, it'd be like, oh, well, we cut six months time up. Like it was all like this very abstract stuff. I'm not saying that's not important. It's just to say like you could not drive down a street and be like. There you go. You know, there's like, the six month savings yeah, in permit exactly. time. Yeah, it was like, yeah, yeah. whoa, like when you drive around San Diego State, it was shocking. Yeah. And um, how that shocking, you know, filters through the political system is a whole new, like, like step well, in the, the process. And I don't know how it'll shake out. Well, and one part that's interesting about it is that the, and this is sort of a Yimby talking point, but I think it's a true one, is that often the previous conversation left out the uh, would-be new residents of housing. That the 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 debate over a new mid-rise complex in your neighborhood was people who live there now versus the developer who wants to build the thing. And left out of the discussion was the hundred people who would live there were it to be built, uh-huh. right? And, and so the the speed with which these ADUs can be built um, while it generates immediate reaction from local residents who see and feel it happening, it also gets new residents into those units quickly. And I wonder if that will create essentially a new political constituency that had always had to be like a, you know, they always had to have a proxy representative in the, in the form of activists, like taking up for them. Totally. So, while I don't, let me just 
to put a point on it. Yeah. While I don't think that ADUs are going to be the solution by any means. And I think in your story, you said it's they're like 10% of units right now. But that's like up from like basically One, zero. But yeah. yeah. Right, I mean, right, function, right. we went from like a couple hundred units a year, which is basically zero in a market yeah. where you build like 100,000 a year yeah. uh, to like 10, 12,000. Right. Like that's, and it's it'll a, be, and it's it'll, a new market. And it'll be basically. 14. Well, so good segue, right? Yeah. So what I, th- I think ADUs yeah. are going to be a big deal. And here's why I think they're going to be a big deal. California, as everyone in California likes to say, is the fifth largest economy in the world. Yeah. Boy, they do like to say it. Yes, it is 40 million people. <laughs> yeah. It's basically England. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, just, it's a little bigger than England in terms of the size of the economy. Yeah. Um, and and we have passed pretty, it's not perfect, but you know, pretty stringent, pretty uniform mm. statewide regulations uh, you know, making it much easier to build ADUs. And there's some local things tacked onto that, but it's like in most places in this state, you can build at least one detached ADU fairly easily, mm-hmm. right? And that process has created a big market, a big, 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 big market. It was funny. I was talking to some of my Yimby friends in Portland the other day and they were like, well, Portland was ahead of you guys. And I'm like, not to like dunk on you, but it kind of doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. because nobody is going to go start raising venture capital right. for their ADU company on the Portland market. Right. Multiple companies have raised hundreds of millions of dollars, probably more at this point, um, for ADU companies purely because they have faith in these statewide regulations. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, they're like, I can now make a market out of this. Yeah. To say nothing of, all the little companies mm-hmm. that are, you know, that aren't yeah, that, there's a bunch. just raising can, bank yeah, loans. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there, there's all this activity. Now, the big holdup in a lot of ADUs is financing. Right. Now, that said, Californians have trillions of dollars in equity mm-hmm. under their homes right now. Um, you know, m- many of those people can pull it out and build a house with it. Even the people who don't have that much equity or have a difficult time getting into it, there's this whole apparatus that's financing is the thing that we haven't done yet but as the market becomes more mature yeah. it will become easier so part of that's part of what scares me but yeah well we're going through the slow motion see it's it's interesting that's my, my scars from the recession there when I, I start hearing like well we'll come up with uh with sophisticated financial instruments to to unlock this so I'm, i i go Ugh. yeah well i, re- I'm I remember not saying that sophisticated <laughs> instruments i'm yeah. saying like well, you're already kind of seeing it. People do those ones where they split the savings with the, or split the investment with yeah. the homeowner. You know, right. I mean, no. And I'm sure one day someone's going to steal someone's house or whatever, and it'll be horrible. But I just yeah. meant, um, you know, what I'm saying is, is that one of the things ADUs has really opened my eyes to is that like, we have talked about the housing problem in California in mostly legislative terms mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh oh zoning if the zoning weren't x we'd have y are you they going to be able to deliver the votes from la or yeah. or just like yeah. this general thing like oh if you could build more densely here everything would be so yeah, yeah but to really change how housing is built like legislation is just like one step on the road to all these other things that happen you yeah. know financing labor you know, building new material, you know, different kinds of design. I mean, all these things have to happen to build a house and you kind of need to have to build homes in a new way. You kind of need to have like 
effectively a new industry. Now, I'm mm-hmm. not saying it has to be built from whole cloth, but you know, it's you have to kind of stitch together this new industry. It has to have its own kind of sense of loans. It has its own sense of like labor and design and, and all yeah, these yeah, things are yeah. happening right now. And the creation of that fifth largest economy in the world, 40 million people mark, the, the sort of foundation of having that one market and having people be confident enough to to basically start businesses premised on it. I think that, I don't think we've totally wrestled with the implications of that just yet. And to sort of, you know, acknowledge the NIMBYs out there, I mean, it could totally overshoot too and get to some like crazy places. But I actually think we're just at the very beginning because we're only talking about legislation right now, but as all those other things, I mean, I was thinking about this the other day. Now I'm off on a complete (laughs) place, but there was, as some people know, there was a attempt to create a, uh, a ballot initiative this year that would have undone SB9 uh, SB9 and a bunch of other laws. It would essentially said local governments can do whatever they want on land use. Right. Yeah. But each year, we get further and further from these ADU laws from SB9. There are more and more people buying into mm-hmm. um, or living m- in them. But yeah, more as renters, more right? companies, yeah. more. I mean, you saw this with Airbnb. One of the like most, we were just you and I had lunch yeah. just before we came into this podcasting studio, and um, we were talking about Airbnbs and Airbnb regulation and blah blah blah. It's something the cities are still wrestling with. But one of the most powerful things for Airbnb is they have these hosts who yeah. are a are really powerful constituency for them who will show up and they're like, what do you mean? I couldn't afford my house if it wasn't for that. You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. so I think that as this becomes more mature, as more people start doing it, as more businesses raise money to build things this way, you are seeing like a huge constituency be formed. Yeah. And, um, and how that all plays out is going to be really interesting to see, but it's um, it's not going to be. I I, I think it's it, we have set in motion something from which I believe we will not be the same. Yeah, and exactly how we're not going to be the same, I don't predict because I just report in real time. <laughs> yeah. But I'm I'm I feel confident saying we have the ADUs have set us on a path to something different, um, hmm. and that's the first time I feel like I've been able to say that. Um, in a in a sort of like I said, in a yeah. whoa, they built that there kind of way, not just a legislative way. Right, you know, right. since I've been covering this, uh, Connor, where is what's the best place for somebody to buy your book? In in order any bookstore, their favorite bookstore. Go to your favorite the, bookstore. Is the is the place to get it? Right. Um, you know, any local bookstore. You know, verbatim books would be a good one. I like that place. Okay, cool. Golden Gates. Fighting for Housing in America. Uh, Connor, thanks for coming in, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in the great Voice of San Diego podcast studio in this part of downtown. Keep up with our stories and insights with The Morning Report. It's our most popular newsletter. See it on our new homepage at voiceofsandiego.org. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego, Andrew Keats, and Andrea Lopez Villafania are our managing editors. Adam Greenfield is our expert technician. And Nate John is our producer and the architect of this swift transition of our website this week. Good job, Nate. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.